This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Minding Creative Minds is a comprehensive well-being and support program available 24-7. Specifically designed for the Irish creative sector, including professionals in the film and TV industry. Experience, peace of mind, knowing that a skilled team of trained counsellors and psychotherapists are at your disposal. They provide medium-term intervention and expert guidance on managing day-to-day challenges that often lead to anxiety and stress. Discover the valuable assistance Minding Creative Minds offers by visiting mindingcreativeminds.ie today. Take the first step towards enhanced well-being in your creative journey in confidence. Hello and welcome to the FNI Rap Chat podcast. My name is Luke Brabazon and today I'm delighted to be speaking to Ken Wardrop. Ken Wardrop is a documentary filmmaker and he has a amazing documentary coming out in cinemas November 17th called So This Is Christmas. Um, I highly recommend going out and checking it out. It's a beautiful film where meets with people who have different relationships with Christmas and the Christmas season and there's a lot of humor to it there's a lot of heart there's a lot of there's you know tougher elements as well but I think it really is beautiful Christmas viewing so I highly recommend checking it out and getting into the festive spirit through that in this conversation we talk about quite a lot of things we go quite into the weeds really so Ken has been on the podcast before and we talked a lot about the journey he's taken to get to where he is now with his work but today we talked a lot more about things like how he'd work with the subjects in the documentaries even if you want to use the word subjects it's quite a difficult uh, one and just the relationships with the people that might be featured in your projects and how he approaches that how to do things with empathy and how the time that needs to go into things and just all of these really important aspects that go into making projects that are as human and as thoughtful as the works that he does are. Um, We also talk a bit about the two companies that he is part of alongside Andrew Friedman so there's Antidote and Venom with uh, Venom being the more uh, creative documentary side and then Antidote doing more high-end commercials and just how that can all be balanced and how a a sustainable business can be built through all of this. It's a fascinating conversation. There's so many amazing nuggets of knowledge and wisdom within it from Ken and I really hope you enjoy the conversation.
Ken, delighted to be welcoming you back to the podcast. I believe the last time you were with us was around 2018 with a making the grade. So I'm looking forward to hearing about how everything has been since then. Um, but I understand you're down at Cork International Film Festival at the moment uh, with another premiere. Would you be able to tell me a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Luke. Very excited to be here again. Um, as I said a little bit earlier, off record you that I'm shocked and disappointed to hear it was 2018. My goodness, I can't believe it's taken this long to get uh, another film cooked, as they say. So uh, we had the opportunity last night to have the world premiere of the new film. So This is Christmas, which is a documentary that explores um, five characters' lives in the lead up to Christmas 2022. And uh, these people are, uh, well, they're now friends, to be honest, and they have uh, shared their very intimate stories and shared their lives with us. And uh, yeah, it's it's it was a beautiful, beautiful screening because the warmth in the room, everybody knew the word the participants were present too. So I suppose it just had a special kind of uh, cozy atmosphere, safe space. And it was, uh, yeah, very joyous, wonderful reception to it. I actually have to admit that, and I normally do panic about watching my films. I do not find them an interesting, that as an interesting um, experience, but I normally watch the very first screening with the participants, but the sound, and I, you know, just really freaked me out when I heard it because it wasn't great in The Everyman. And I kind of ran and I came back at the end, <laughs> but uh, it was fine. Everybody got to hear 99.9% .9 of it. But you know yourself when you're watching your films, um, you as a filmmaker will understand that you just see all the problems with it and what you'd still love to change because we'd all keep editing forevermore our films. So there's a point where you have to say goodbye to it. But uh, when you see it on the, the big screen with an audience for the first time, you do see other issues that you hadn't seen prior to that while you're in the edit suite. So, so anyway, it was a bit of an odd one having to run out of the room. I did admit to it afterwards on in the Q&A, which was also a lovely experience because I got the opportunity to introduce the characters to the audience and uh, give them a round of applause and a virtual hug from the stage and all of that. So, and actually that's something weird too, because with a Q&A and if you're making a drama and you have the opportunity, you know, obviously you bring the cast up on stage, but because it was a very personal story and uh, sorry, personal to the characters in the film, um, it felt a little bit odd to get them up on stage because I didn't want to open it up to the audience to start asking other questions about their lives and so on. So I did feel like I was hogging the limelight, even though it's a very, it's about the participants. Like I only put the camera in front of them and they, they did the rest of the work, to be honest. Um, so it was a bit of an odd scenario just to be faced with like, do I ask people up? And then I just played safe and thought, no, do you know what? It mightn't be right because they, we might start getting strange questions. <laughs> As Q&As can go any which way, again, as a fellow filmmaker, you know this, 
you can have strange questions land that you weren't expecting. And I remember the very first time, the very first screening of His and Hers, which was my very first feature documentary. And the first question that I ever had to face was from a really irate a person in the audience who literally started to scream at me about how much she hated the film and how offended she was by the content. And I was like, I talk about, I was petrified. I didn't know how to respond. And thankfully uh, some kind uh, member in the audience stood up for me and actually came back with a response on my behalf. <laughs> and then it kind of unfolded in, to a debate amongst the audience. I was kind of saved. Um, anyway, there you go. Reminiscing. It's wild how these things can go. And I think it's actually quite interesting, particularly with your work, because you are dealing with often people that are in sort of vulnerable situations, really. And you're kind of showcasing a lot of people that maybe normally wouldn't be presented on a large uh, stage. So then there is a lot of, I guess, nearly like duty of care almost that comes in there, especially oh, when then it comes sure. to the screening. Yes, absolutely. So first and foremost, this, yeah, this is a very intimate, uh, the characters are unbelievably honest. They put so much trust in me as a filmmaker. I'm privileged and honoured to have had that opportunity. So uh, duty of care as first and foremost, uh, you know, something. So we would have shared the film. So everybody wasn't the first time to see the film. So everybody had seen the film and had uh, appreciated it, responded very positively to it. And I think the reality is, even though like these stories are very familiar to us, there's nothing out there that's quite extraordinary about them, but it's their vulnerability because they're honest, open, and uh, forthright and they lay everything on the table and I think people are sort of shocked themselves that people can be this honest because but we all know when we are honest and we are open like there's a freedom in that there's a cathartic kind of experience from going through that and I would hope and having spoke to each of the participants personally and followed through, I mean, these are friends now, you know, Luke, they're not just participants. I hate using that word because they are now my mates. I have been on a really uh, incredibly close journey with them from the very start, never hid anything from them during the process, explained it all. Fortunately, I have a back catalogue that can be looked at, we can explore to know what type of films I made. For example, on Dressing My Mother, putting that out to show the vulnerability of a character and how, you know, I would protect um, the story ultimately and to ensure. So you go through all these different phases, but obviously the most important phase is the finished product and putting it in front of them first and foremost and getting their reaction and knowing that they feel uh, happy, confident, whatever those words are, you go through all the kind of emotional experiences that they may have had or uh, responses to it, you talk through it. And then uh, we would have also had profesh a professional help on hand that would have talked to the participants after the film and uh, guided them through uh, the scenarios that would um, would be the case. And then, of course, then to show it with an audience. Uh, but this reception was so beautiful and I think everybody was so proud afterwards. So uh, I think 
we were all delighted ultimately yeah that's brilliant i think it's well testament to how a uh, you conduct all of these things that people have the trust but i feel like there's also is an interesting dynamic you were sort of touching on at the beginning there of when a camera is put in front of someone and they're asked to speak about their lives you would people might first assume that it would kind of close up but very often it then it allows space i've sometimes noticed when i've done projects i've realized that i might be one of the first people to actually ask someone these questions where maybe they nearly wanted to be able to express themselves do you have any thoughts on that kind of yeah i think so. I, I suppose people need to express themselves um and don't get afforded the opportunity and also you know i think one of the things i get a lot when i approach people to be in my films people say well why would you be interested in me like what's what is my story you know my story is only you know um i'm just an ordinary person being an ordinary life I have my problems and so well you know that's who I'm interested in I'm not making the films about you know the pop stars or the famous sports people I just make it about everyday folk so I think people are you know in a way um I suppose surprised that I would be interested in them and that I do uh, present an opportunity to to explore and tell their stories and then, you know, uh, a lot of people are on personal journeys. And if you look at this uh, film in particular, we have um, various different issues from uh, addiction to an eating disorder. We have grieving. They're all journeys that these people are going through. And I do feel expressing, communicating is such a healing. There can be a healing opportunity in that and then if they feel safe with me now I'm not a professional I know that I don't know all I do is reach out with care and understanding and then we can see where this takes us and you know as I said I'm always it is that moment when you show the film and they come back at you with a response I always feel if they see themselves and they see the truth and that there's a knot of a near or they've not faked it, I think people are much prouder and much more surprised by what uh, unfolds. Um, in a, and then, of course, once other people react to it and they see, my God, I can touch people. I can, people have empathy with my story. They understand. And then suddenly they realize, well, maybe I'm a more resilient person than I thought I was. And then, so they, the journey continues and the healing hopefully kicks a little bit. Like I'm not trying to save people or do anything like that, but I would hope and pray, to be honest, on uh, that the film helps Um the characters um, and some people in the audiences that get the opportunity to see this film too. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you go out and you just hope for the best at the end of the day too. Yeah. Well, I, I saw the film a couple of weeks back and I would believe it will do what you're hoping um, because I think it means so much also maybe just the act of representation when someone can see their own story or a similar story and if they can empathize with what they're seeing on screen, then it just helps people feel, I guess, maybe less alone. And I know one of the characters yes. that was very much, like, I think it was a case yeah. with most of the characters in different ways, but, you know, just feeling that they're not 
yeah. the audience and different people aren't alone and cinema can be that great tool for empathy. I absolutely agree with you, Luke. And loneliness does come out clearly early with Annette's story, for example, because when we met her, she had she hadn't met a human being, I think, in five or six weeks. So she was. But, uh, you know, deep down, I think all our characters were alone. And, you know, but, you know, and I know this is deep and I don't know where I'm going with this, but we are all ultimately alone. And you go through those phases in life where you have that understanding. And if we are dealing and we're talking about a particular problem, um, and by the way, this is all in the context of Christmas because we forgot to say that, like, actually at the heart of it is the triggers that, you know, Christmas provides when you have problems. So what I was getting at there is that loneliness prevails, I think, a lot of these because you can only, if you're battling addiction or an eating disorder, that is only you can are dealing with that. You can get all the advice and all the support and all the love and everything. At the end of the day, though, you go to sleep you fall asleep and you rest your head in the pillow and there will you will be alone so i felt that kind of that was a really uh big driving force in the film and when you're in the edits and when you're kind of exploring subtext and all of that um that was sort of at the fore a lot of the time so let's go back to the christmas thing because i think yes you know, we've gone very context, deep into yeah, a space here. i'm interested in exploring but i think but, yes yeah it. Yeah. Well, Christmas, you see, um, I have a long history with his uh, with Christmas and it being a complicated time of year. So when I was 12, my granny, my mom's mom, who she adored, uh, was staying with us over the Christmas and she actually passed away on Christmas Day. It was a surprise and, you know, we weren't expecting it. And obviously it was very dramatic and traumatic and uh, it's. Christmas then became something else for the next few years. You know, it was a darker experience. My mom was mourning and it was a, a day we remembered Nan and Granny. Sorry, I never called her Nan. Why did I say that? Granny. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so mom would, and I think she just got in the habit then of always saying, oh, I dread Christmas. Oh, here comes Christmas. I hate this time of year. So it always became something. And it never left, to be honest. I think forevermore, mom hated Christmas. So, um, yeah, it just changed uh, how I perceived that time of year. And I guess any time I've had my own battles, be it with mental health or when I was missing, when I was grieving my father or whatever, you know, Christmas compounds it. And it's just a more uh, difficult time. And uh, I said it to my producing colleague, Andrew Friedman, who I've been working with since my IADT days. I said, uh, you know, I'd, I'd really like to explore a Christmas documentary because I didn't know of any. And he thought, you know, obviously that's a great idea because Christmas films can last forever and ever and they can be replayed. <laughs> uh, so uh, we embraced this and then we started to, you know, go on the research phase and put together a little trailer to, to in, see if we could raise some financing. You know, we had development support from uh, Screen Ireland and Creative Europe because uh, it was on our slate. So we uh, put together a trailer and then we got uh, Outlook uh, Film Sales came on board the project which was a great um, stamp of approval and they're a fantastic partner and other kind of financing then fell into place, you know. 
So, uh, yeah, the Christmas thing. I mean, the film started out as uh, the working title was I Hate Christmas. And then it was only during not the research phase, but actually the production where so many of the people I was meeting discussed hope and the fact that Christmas, like even Advent uh, from a religious perspective, the meaning of Advent is hope and it's a message of hope. So it kind of started to to emerge as something that I needed to ensure that at least as bleak, let's face it, some of these stories are, I needed some sense of hope. And the characters provided that ultimately because they are all resilient. They all hang on to that uh, idea of hope and that life can change and a new uh, light can seep through the cracks. And around the next corner, there could be opportunities. And, um, you know, so that that became something very important. And hopefully it does come out in the final film. I do think it does. There's a few things that are sort of coming from there. I was interested to, to ask. And one is a bit of a more of a nuts and bolts question. But you've mentioned that one of the a a one of the people within the film hadn't spoken to anyone else in quite a while. And I'm wondering then, how did you and how, how did you find these characters? Was it sort of an open call out or was it how how do you approach these kind of things? Or is it very much word of mouth and well, I'll tell you, we have, okay, so when we set sail, um, we uh, had two researchers. I'm going to talk about two researchers. We did have more researchers, but there were two key researchers that came on board and stayed from the very start to finish the project. And they were Anne-Marie Fitzgerald and Pamela Finn. Anne-Marie had, had done some research uh, in TV, so it's some experience. Pamela had just, Pam had literally seen the ad and said, oh, I'll put my name in. And I get very excited when people don't have experience. But, are, you know, and after talking to Pam, I was like, gosh, you're great. Of course, people are going to want to talk to you. And you are you have the uh, spark and the extrovert personality that you'll be able to, uh, you know, reach out and contact people and so forth. So both ladies, fantastic, Anne-Marie too, said uh, we had a kind of a bigger agenda that at the very start, we'd reach out to the organizations, the support groups and so the, the umbrella, um, the umbrella agencies that may, we may find characters that would be struggling at Christmas. So we brainstormed around the various problems people are faced with from financial to um, again, addiction, or, you know, I'm sure we had so many things on that list and we would have reached, and I always find it like really frustrating to deal with organizations because you get such a lovely response initially, and then you get the opportunity to talk to their CEO if, and then the CEO is like, oh, that's a great idea. And after an hour's conversation, they say, We're, can you put it in writing and I'll bring it to the board. And the board meeting only happens like in five weeks time. And you're like, okay. So you go down the next layer and then you say, okay, what in a, on a county level, for example, what organizations can I um, infiltrate and try to get access to and find uh, champions for the project? And then that gets complicated because then they have to reach out to superiors and it's all for 
Ultimately, boat researchers ended up using their own worlds and finding people within the almost the geographical. Like, so Anne Marie walked the streets of Port Lee. She lives in Monastraven. I said, Well, why don't you get over to Port Arlington, where I'm from? There's Mount Malik and Port Leash. They're big enough towns. You walk around, go into the charity shops, talk to different people. And suddenly, and then suddenly, word of mouth started to spread. And we found uh, both Mary and uh, Jason in that way. And then Pam reached out to her father, worked in the council and just said, any chance there's any of the council workers you work with dad? And of course we found Shane. And then Pam found uh, Loretta via some groups in Galway. Sorry, these Pam's based in Galway. So anyway, it was really their own spheres. Now, going back to Annette, she hadn't seen anyone. But the one thing Annette, Annette does is Facebook. And she had seen the call out because some group, I think was the Age Action Group in Kildare Town or one of the kind organisations that did kind of let us in, did trust us and then let it out into the public domain. And Annette came back with uh, with a kind of just a curiosity, I guess, initially. And then Anne-Marie got on and said, I think, Ken, you should meet this lady. And then, uh, of course, myself and Annette vibe straight away because she's so, uh, like, she's kind of a cynic. Well, she is a cynic. She'll admit that herself. And she's, uh, you know, kind of has a really good attitude towards things. She can laugh at herself. And I think that's a really good attribute. And uh, so we just hit it off. Mm-hmm. I, As I did talk the characters. And sorry, yeah. going on to the next layer of the research. So then I get to meet them. And really, you know, uh, I'm going on a long journey with these people. I've not had, I hadn't made a film with so few characters in it previously. So I knew I was like, normally I drop in and out of people's lives in a day, maybe two days. And now I suddenly knew I was going to be back five or six, seven, eight days with these people. Um, firstly, they'll want to like me. I think, uh, and I'll have to, you know, we're going to become friends from this experience. So you kind of, you just get the, you get the vibes. As I said, you get the vibes. And these people I connected with straight away. Should they all made me laugh and cry within the first time? Like it was just, and strangely enough, and I'm not going to mention names, but we were doing a article there for uh, one of the national newspapers and the journalist, was just contacting me saying how much she enjoyed her conversations and that she feels like she's made three friends out of her article and then she's going to meet with Annette and uh, like all this I was like just mad isn't it how you know good people just they're 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 magnetic you know yeah absolutely and I think well, there's a few sort of takeaways from I think that one is I think the importance of community and then engaging in communities and that's where these kind of connections can be made but also that it's just a lot of hard work as well if you really want to be able to make something special and if you really want to approach it properly you do need to make those steps out into the spaces and really give people time and really make sure that the approach is done well and then from there the magic can come but it's just important to start on the right foot and take things yeah yeah exactly yeah you have to get off to the right at the right thing and i think that's when you know the trust when you 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 put it all out there i remember saying um 
to each and every character. I hope I certainly remember um, that I would explain the project. I would say, please Google me galore please i'll send you on all the links in my films no you know so just in case there's something i've forgotten and you you know or you know i want you to understand where i'm coming from and what this journey will be and explain the process and the commitment because that's another thing you don't want to go and it's only like day five someone comes over and she said oh my god i didn't realize there was this much work and this much and it's a lot there's a lot of uh commitment to a project like this and as you know and i know this podcast is you know for industry so when i start talking about 35 millimeter it's you know we had the opportunity the privilege to shoot on 35 it was a big thing for us and with that comes a lot of messing around for want of a better word you know there's nine people on the crew we had nine people like and these like we were in tiny houses and you know everything was stop start it wasn't like I was just following them doing their daily lives uh you know it was an ordeal for all of our uh characters you know they had to get into cars go with a big crew spotted around the towns or whatever you know it was like there was no hiding the fact that we were all uh making a film and stuff you know okay yeah I was going to ask about that because I, I feel like a lot of a uh documentaries became a lot easier to make when we moved to digital and to formats where you could get away with kind of filming until you got it but then when you bring it back to film you know every minute costs money and there has to be the changeovers of the mag and everything like that so then how do you manage the the easy bars i'm like oh my god it's so i was at different times i was like i am never shooting on film again this is a nightmare and i was laughing at poor connor he was the ascam i was like if you go into that room and take another measurement i'll lose my nut here like how am i meant to do anything in a person like it was but he forgave me and i was like and I do now, I'm so grateful of filming it on 35 because I think it looks beautiful. I think Narian Van Mael, the cinematographer, did an amazing job. I'm so proud of what he achieved and that I have a film that looks like this. And I think he made the right call in the end because we did. I did argue for, like, are we being stupid, you know, is this going to be a disaster are we going to have enough stock am i going you know and i would be cutting so quickly on the end of every shot you know and poor connor would be like i'd be like shout cut 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 why you got and he's like you can't cut so quickly you'll need the edit and i was so like and i so understand that now and he i regret how grumpy i was because 35 just made me feel so scared at the very start and then we got into the rhythm and then i was really clued into the amount of stock each day and i felt it was probably a third of the way in that i thought okay now i i I think we've got enough stock to do this, you know, because at the beginning I was very scared of it all. And how, like, if it unravels, where do you go? Because the money have all gone and, you know, there's no, you can't really change formats. I suppose we could have, but <laughs> it would have been a bit odd um, to change out at that stage. So uh, anyway, we got there. It's as 
as I say to people, the um, the process of shooting on film is so much more creative because you you know you have to make decisions and you feel like you're actually directing because sometimes you know as a documentary maker and you're just running around with camera and just pointing is like you're not really directing or influencing or creating you're just facilitating people being which is still a really important thing and people are gifted doing it but my documentaries are constructed like they're creative documentaries I really impose myself I kind of like work out scenes with the characters okay and so it really suits my way of working to be honest and um yeah so it was it, it you know I, I'd love to say I'll never go back to digital but sure I, you know yourself with the uh with budgets and so forth and the constraints around the uh um various yeah. production issues it, it's it's a very different kind of thing and then yeah like I I would say I've, I've only done a small bit of work on film but I remember it just imposing a very different discipline and maybe discipline is a big part is a good word for it where yeah you're forced to make decisions I, I think when you can film on digital especially with documentary you can kind of put off decisions and then all your edits and your directing nearly can become the shot choices in the edit bay or which parts of an hour-long interview you use but then yeah. if you're forced to make those decisions earlier then you can well I guess you can maybe have a more streamlined overall process as well yeah yeah no it is all about discipline it's about having shot lists it's about preparing and preparation you know sometimes you can feel like you're winging it in documentary or literally you're going off a schedule but we had shot lists we had you know uh yeah we were very specific scenes and approaches and it was in that way it was much more like doing a drama at times i suppose None of the characters had, to the best of my knowledge, now I might discover that they've all been in documentaries, but I don't think they were in documentaries before. So I think it was all fresh to them. So to them, they probably thought everything was made this way. So it didn't really uh, hamper, I think, them being themselves on screen. And once you got over the bump of uh, nine people behind the camera and all squeezed into like a small little cottage or whatever, um, you know, we all, and I think that's, I'm so like, and I really put this down to the crew because they were absolutely amazing. And they all became friends with the characters too. They were just embraced the kind of approach and the intimacy and respected everybody's space and understood the importance of their role in a human context in this project. And really, I couldn't have asked for better people to to be part of this project with. And, you know, from Bob on sound to Ronan and Connor and camera. And then we had uh, Paul Rigg doing the lights. They were all just great human beings. As, as all of the characters said to me afterwards, they just commended the team and just spoke about how much they enjoyed the process and what that brought to their lives alone. And... So I, I think it was a really interesting shared uh, experience for the team too, because I suppose with documentaries, you don't normally have that size of a team and you don't normally like, you know, get stuck in them the way we did. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that it's getting the right people around you for any project like this is kind of essential. And I guess over the last good few years, you've managed to assemble this kind of team. But if I could... Uh, 
bring it back then. So you wait a minute. I have to correct you there. Go on. I I correct you there because I haven't worked with any of those before. Oh, really? Other than Andrew. Oh, sorry, I lie. Because I better mention Steve Battle, who did the production manager. Oh, my goodness. What a man. And what? And so I had worked with Steve before. So myself and Steve had made you right. I stand corrected. And apologies there, Luke, for even. Oh, I, I wasn't aware. I just yeah. made assumptions. Oh, uh, did you? No, no. Yeah. But Steve and I did. We went on uh, making the grade together. Steve did sound and I did camera. And we worked as a two man operator. And then he came on board for, as a production manager for this project. But my goodness, he's such a fantastic, not only organizer, which you have to be as production, but just a, just a great people's person and connected so well with each and everyone. And I could just hand over the responsibilities to Steve to be the uh, conduit with the characters and the production, where normally I'd be the person doing that. And that freed me up to think about things like shot lists, which, you know, is a luxury. You know, I'm not trying to call the characters that can you meet down, you know, at the crossroads at, you know, three o'clock and have the, you know, so he did all of that, which uh, it, it actually takes a very special person to do that because they have to be, it's, they're a silent kind of hero because they have to have the same spirit as I have to ha have with the characters because, I go and meet the character after they've had all of the conversations with Steve. And if for any reason it had gone, you know, a little bit off or that relationship had been strained and there was too much, you know, that could have caused me problems when I got there with a film camera and asking them to open up and share and all of that. So I have to say Steve uh, is such, and, and he's a fellow filmmaker in that way. You know, he's, he's great. Uh, having, having the someone look after the production side and knowing you've got the trust and you know, the team is just massive and, and i didn't want to share his surname i didn't want to share his surname I and mean, some of those filmmakers out there are going to grab him and steal him and he won't be available to work i <laughs> will uh, be get too busy after this because he is super mm -hmm. always the challenge um but the so, so i think where i was sort of a uh, bringing things then is you so you have antidote but you also have venom but then many years back you had a graduate film from iagt called undressing my mother and i'm wondering what were the steps that brought you from that to where you are now and also if we could talk a bit about the whole having to balance the commercial side of being involved in the film industry with the creative because it seems like yes. you've managed to do quite a good job of it and it is such a massive challenge well i haven't done a good job of it i'll tell you one thing my colleague andrew friedman has done a good job of it because andrew is the brains here like and he's the businessman and he is a, a creative too in his own right for sure so i graduated i with a short film called uh undressing my mother which you know, I could say was the launch pad or, you know, the thing that kickstarted my career, but actually it was meeting Andrew Friedman. So Andrew was a young lad, uh, 18 year old, and I was the mature student, 26 year old gay fella. I don't think Andrew had ever met a gay person in his life before. And uh, so we were definitely totally different types of characters and yet we connected over and I think it was material I think I'd shot a little film called Hen which was like with my family and I showed him the rushes 
And Andrew was a great editor. He was like the best editor in the class or, you know, and we all, you know, even though he came in every day with a briefcase and looked like a businessman, we all thought, you know, Andrew's the best editor. And I really wanted him to edit the project. So I showed it to him and he agreed to work with me on it. And then we just became friends and became collaborators. Thereafter, Andrew edited all the the films. And when we graduated, we'd kind of, I mean, he was producing at this stage as well, other films. Um, but it just seemed like uh, sort of, it was always going to happen that we would, I think, go into business together. I don't know how it, I can't remember the day I suggested or he suggested to me, but we left. And as I felt as a team almost because we worked on all the projects together. And then we set up two companies, one called Venom and the other called Antidote. I can't remember which came first, but I think we got it messed up because I do think in hindsight, we should have called Venom the commercial side and Antidote the film side. But anyway, that's another day's uh, story. So uh, yeah, we, how did it all happen? I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> it's a it's a complicated story. And actually, we're still trying to work it all out, Luke. <laughs> Andrew has really done an amazing job. Antidote must be one of the busiest commercial companies now, uh, production companies in the country. Uh, we produce some of the, the uh, best known work by all of the best agencies, work with some great clients. And it's been a privilege that, you know, they keep returning to us and they keep returning to the directors that we represent on the roster. So how that works is that we have, I think, around 10 to 12 directors, both uh, Irish and international directors. And then we uh, pitch them in to the agencies and they, if we're lucky and the creatives and agencies like their work, we'll treat on commercials and propose how we would tackle the projects and so forth. So pitch on them, basically. So that took quite a while to break into, I suppose, the high end of the market. We would have hovered around um, in the lower and mid section for a while, but always aspiring to get the bigger budgets, um, the better creatives, you know, just given the size of budgets and so forth and the more ambitious projects. And I, I think, you know, Andrew worked really unbelievably hard to, to crack that. And, you know, it's down to his absolute dedication to that industry and to his management of projects and his desire to make good work and to stand by the creative you know, and really to protect the directors, to protect the projects and just, um, what's the word, manage them so well. So anyway, that was Antidote, got up and running after about 10 years, I'd say, before it was really hit the, hit the high notes. And then Venom has been ticking along. It's been a mixed... A uh, bag of opportunities and projects to a certain point, but three or four years ago. So we'd made dramas, we'd made documentaries, primarily as a vehicle for my work. And then every so often another project would appear. And then about four years ago, we started to kind of rethink the company vision. And, you know, it took us quite, we, we actually did screen leaders that course uh, Screen Ireland and Skillnet Ireland had uh, established and that was a great 
opportunity and we did a lot of soul searching and talking and we decided that we would really put our uh, focus energy into documentaries. So since then, we have been um, fortunate to get Creative Europe slate funding for five of our documentaries. And then we got Screen Ireland slate funding so we could match fund some of those. And it kickstarted, for example. So this is Christmas, but we also have just finished shooting Sanatorium by um, first time director Gar Rourke, which is very exciting. I had the opportunity to make or produce Gar's short film called Kachalka, which was about a gym in Kiev in Ukraine. And while we were out there, this was well before the war, well uh, before COVID, but while we were out there, Gar discovered this Kualnik, um, uh, uh, which is a sanatorium for, it's very hard to describe what sanatoriums are. They're like a health spa, spa, old school Soviet style. So some of the therapies there would be quite unusual, <laughs> say the least, like almost electric shock therapy. And so it's it's somewhere between holiday meets health spa, spa meets actually a hospital. Fascinating place. Obviously, um, you know, it was, we had started the process we'd shot a trailer for it and then the war breaks out. So we thought we it would have to be put on hold. And of course, unfortunately, as we all know, the war lasted longer and extended. And at some stage, like we thought, well, you know, Qualnec is still operational. Perhaps this is kind of something that needs to be told, A you know, in the middle of a war, there is still people trying to technically, they have a holiday trying to heal. And so we set sail. Now, unfortunately, Guard didn't get to travel out to um, Odessa, where Kualnik is based, uh, but we did it all remotely. And we'd had loads of experience during COVID with remote shooting because we'd done a project called Million Dollar Pigeons. And that shot in 14 countries around the world and all remotely by the director, Gav Fitzgerald, did a great job from his bedroom, literally. And so we knew we could do it and Gar uh, steered the ship and did a great job uh, under very difficult, uh, you know, scenarios. But we had a, an amazing team out in the Ukraine. What fantastic people and like just they were so passionate about this and they really believed in the project because they won it. They wanted people to see life beyond the war because so many films are being made and so many docu documentaries being shot out in Ukraine. But of course, they are all about the war primarily and, and need to be. But this film just stood out from that crowd a little bit and everybody uh, involved got very excited about it because it's full of humour. It's full of, you know, uh, humanity. And, you know, so we do have a soldier that is recouping, but we also have a woman who wants to get pregnant and we have a, uh, a mother and son who are just there to heal their broken friend relationship. So it was a mixed bag of characters. Anyway, I could talk for hours about Sanitary because we're all super excited about that project. Yeah, um, that sounds amazing. Um, yeah. I've often heard as well, like the times that, it's most difficult to film often are the times when the best stories will happen as well. So sometimes you have to be like, yeah, just go for it. 
yeah, you you had to go first. You had to go first. Um, absolutely. So we we are super excited about that. We're working with other directors, and our slate continues to evolve and grow. And um, you know, we are on various different stages uh, with different projects and forming new relationships with directors. And I think one of the key messages, and this is actually um, a chance to say it out loud, is that, you know, Venom is more than and uh, than me as a director. You know, we're working with lots of other directors. We're out there trying to spread our name so that people understand that it is more, you know, it's it's more than just me and Andrew. We've got Samantha and Jesse now working with us. Samantha's full-time producer, Jesse, is a coordinator. We've got Heidi Fletcher, who is a international development um person and she works out of paris for us and yes we really have a presence across the industry representation at all the festivals marketplaces i think we've established relationships with the majority of sales agents and distributors now that are out there i think people are keen to hear what we have on the the agenda and uh yeah it's exciting times for venom and we're really delighted to have really concentrated our energy focus aspirations and dreams in docs because that's what we did back in IDT days that's what kind of afforded us the opportunity to move from our schooling and our education into the big bad world and it is for anyone coming out of film school it is very complicated to know what next so you know if you're a director i mean you can't it's very very difficult i mean one in every 50 people maybe jump from film school to directing what is that other thing that you have that you can hold on to that can pay for um you know your rent obviously or whatever it is uh, so that you can move from there into directing in due course Uh, what's the word i'm looking for um serve your time i think my mother my mother or father would have said you serve your time in order to get to where you're heading but what you serve your time in is a very confusing one as a director in particular like if you go into camera you'll get kind of pigeonholed into that if you go into ading and you just want to you know so how do you stick at the game of directing and we were very fortunate that antidote and doing the early corporates then the commercials afforded the opportunity to stay within film as well and Andrew as I said works so hard and I owe him so much to uh, my little success that I've achieved you know he has been um, just the best business partner my best pal my best friend throughout the whole process and it's really um, it's it's kind of lousy that I always get the opportunity to talk on these because honestly, you guys would learn so much more from him. He's so, uh, he's just so bright, so creative and uh, definitely um, is the unsung hero in in the sense of um, the company and my work. We'll we'll need to give him a shout sometime. Ah, directors soon, then, get all the attention, Luke. I think it's time. Ch- I mean, I'm sure you've had loads of producers on, but uh, you know, we do get a little bit more of the attention, and uh, it's sort of unfair because you know it's like it takes a team to make a film, and I know everybody is like you know, but 
you know, I'm just thinking about, so this is Christmas and my goodness, for example, it was a film and then we gave it to Emer Noon, the composer, and she just elevated it. You know, it's like, it's one thing and then you hand it over to another person and it becomes something else because of their genius and their talent and it elevates it. And likewise, working with the editor, John O'Connor, his his intuitive nature towards this kind of material, his decisions through that edit formed this film. Like I have, you know, I just kept the the train on the tracks at times, you know, but I was a headless chicken for a lot of it. And then other people came in and worked their magic and, you know, um, and a, no better a person, for example, than Bob, who Rob Brennan, who, and again, I don't want to be saying names because he'll be taken, but like, my goodness, on sound, I mean, location sound, I never realized that it was like Bob halved my workload because he is such a beautiful person and his camaraderie, kindness, his gift of the gab with the characters just was just incredible and it's actually saved me like because normally I'd be running around trying to keep everybody happy and just paranoid about you know if there was you know and obviously there are children involved playing with children tatting parents getting get Narian ready on the camera I'd have to go you know and I would just but I just felt like Bob's there chatting to the you know Steve's out front dealing with and someone else with all the problems with the neighbors cutting the lawns or whatever and it just everything just worked and it was a, a beautiful experience and um yeah aren't we lucky aren't we lucky us filmmakers that we are able to go out and do this for a living and to experience such like for me, it's like I'm alive, you know, when you have just when you're working with great people and meeting and every day is meeting wonderful people and every day is different. And yes, there's sh shitty days and complicated days and rainfall days and, you know, but you just feel alive when you're doing this. And it's um, it's such an honor. And um i know like i'm i've been lucky i've put in I, i've not like you know I, I don't put in for every application there is and i it's hit and miss like every other filmmaker out there you know but i think we are so lucky in this country because when i talk to my friends now in the uk and the us who are they just do not like to try to make independent documentaries it is such a battle and so many people live on the breadline or just, you know, have to give up their dreams. And I think we are so lucky in this country to at the moment, and please God, they keep this going. And it's because of the many wonderful projects that have come out of Screen Ireland and uh, have set sail and, and been successes across the world. Um, but we have such great support and, uh, you know, there is... And long may that last. And we need it because it's, you know, it's a, Ireland is a, it's just full of talent and great crew. And, you know, so uh, it's just lovely to see it flourishing. It really is. I was chatting to a friend uh, quite recently and we were doing a project together and I sort of asked the quite blunt question of how are you able to financially manage this? And they'd gotten the artists, uh, the Basic Income for Artists Award. And every friend I have and everyone I know that has received this, they've been doing incredibly well because such a massive burden has been lifted from them. 
like sure you know the funding doesn't pay for the actual making of a project but it does cover the rent for the time that they're thinking about things and it just has if the, when the financial support can be there for people doing their work it just allows such a amazing uh like bursting forth of creativity i mean i don't know that's an ingenious i, I mean what that's a fantastic um uh scheme i just thought like this is amazing that this is afforded to artists and that someone had this bright idea because the only thing can flourish is culture and us as people and we'll all benefit by it if um they uh, these creative and talented individuals are given some space to to uh, create and I, I'm, I'm going to get tongue-tied here because I just want to say that I am nursing a hangover from last night and it's kind of been a difficult one to even... Okay, <laughs> I'm well, sure yeah. people listening would have thought, oh my God, what's this waffle about? So, um, you know yourself with a bit of a fuzzy head, you can go any which way. But the good thing is, Luke, you haven't made me cry and I really appreciate that. because I'm, I'm, I'm glad have... I, you know, I, I, I'm glad then, I didn't... self here. <laughs> um, but, but it's, uh, yes, it's not, yeah look we're that. we're in a we're very fortunate people and a race at the this moment to have had such investment in the film industry and in the creative industry we just need to hang on to it we need to protect it and we also need to be appreciative of it because these things may not always be there and um yeah we make may, as my father would say make hay while the sun shines I agree. Um, so if people want to see So This Is Christmas. Oh, there's so much opportunities now. Thank you for asking. That's why I came on here is just to like sing loud about Christmas time around the corner and my films and theatres. And So This Is Christmas is going to be nationwide from November 17th in all good cinemas. So I think it is, as usual, limited to uh, it has a documentary theatrical release, which in fairness, breakout pictures have done an incredible job. So I think we've got 24 sites across the country from Yall to uh, Gory to Kilkenny and obviously across Dublin and the I-5 and the usual spots, Lighthouse Savoy, uh, Dunleary, Dundrum, uh yeah wherever you've walked yourself into a hole here yes i was like i can't remember different places newbridge definitely newbridge it's in port leash i don't know whoever listens into here but you will find it near you i'm sure so i know it's super exciting i mean it'll probably like you really it lives and dies by the first weekend and we know a little film like this actually needs word of mouth so gone are the days we were very lucky with and hers because we had an unusual scenario that it built upon built upon I think it kept growing for the first six or seven weeks and it just whatever it was during the World Cup I think and there was nothing in cinemas because none of the uh, the big titles wanted to release during the World Cup so Element Pictures who were just reading that just snuck it in the window and then so there was nothing biting at its heels to come into the cinemas so it just hung around and then started to gather momentum so I remember back in the day I don't know if this 
does happen, but it was very unusual to see a film go get stronger and stronger at the box office. Normally the other way, the opening weekend is the biggest and then it drops out or peters off. So uh, look, that can't happen again. It's just a different uh, environment and climate for uh, so we might last the opening weekend, but honestly, after last night's response and um, love for the characters in the film, who knows, maybe it will stay around. So, uh, yeah, so, but I would recommend everybody try to catch it on the opening weekend. Did I say it opens the 17th of November? I Nation think the repeating. Yes, and of course, I know these podcasts live forever. So we are in 2020. 23 currently just because people will be listening uh, in 2029 and might get confused that is a good point it's interesting proving this for you yeah i appreciate that it's we i feel like with a reels and a lot of internet has become 24 hour cycle things now but then something like this will be will be up for quite a lot longer than that so it's it's good to be aware of these things um Luke, at the start of this, you said it wouldn't be edited. So I'm just saying this now in case the person doesn't even get this far in this podcast. But I hope to goodness they get to edit it. Because they'll be bored senseless off your listeners. You don't want to be losing people. Uh it's it's uh the risk of long form long form podcast media. Yeah. I think we're a slightly niche audience. Um, but I think I'll wrap things up there. And Ken, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh this week and really looking forward to seeing the release and a best luck with a everything that comes along here over the next couple of years we'll be back in the next five years to interview you again about another project i'm sure Um, well luke i i really want to just i have one thing to say to you happy christmas (laughs) i wanted to thank you so much for this opportunity because it's you know, you guys are doing a great job and uh, keeping us all informed and giving um, uh, voice to everybody from beginners to, you know, established. And I think it's wonderful to just hear all these different people working within the industry and our stories. And um, yeah, so thank you, Luke. Drag Race UK is back and if you are watching and you want to hear some outrageous opinions, some glittering guests and some piping hot tea, tune in to Sissy That Pod with new episodes every Friday right after the episode airs. Brought to you by the Headstuff Podcast Network. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Hate me because I listen to Sissy That Pod.